Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. So I've got John Acuff on the line, author of Quitter, Start, and the recent Do-Over, as well as uh, Stuff Christians Like from way back. John, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks for having me on, James. John, let me first ask this. I want to talk about your most recent book, Do-Over, but your very first book you wrote, Stuff Christians Like, and you wrote that when you were still kind of at the cubicle job. Am I right? Yeah, I was. Uh, I worked in, at, for Auto Trader in Atlanta as the technical kind of writer. And when you wrote that book, did that give you like this extra kind of cool factor at work? Yeah, temporarily. Like a handful of people knew about it, and they would say like, "Oh, are you gonna quit your job?" And I would always say, "I got thirty grand in my advance, which after agent and taxes was thirteen thousand dollars." So yeah. when people, that's just a crazy thought that I would quit my job for thirteen thousand dollars. Right, and people don't realize that uh, it's actually very hard to make money as an author of books in general, unless it's like, nearly you, impossible. Yeah, well, well, like you, like let me just ask, um, you know, how many speaking gigs have you done in the past year? Um, probably sixty. Yeah, so you got to do a lot of work on top of writing books to you know, essentially have your dream job, which is kind of the, the essence of all your works, which is how to go from kind of the day job to the dream job, or, you know, through all these different, um, essentially the arc of your books. That's the story I see. Yeah. One, 100%. And there's so much of that that you don't get to see because, you know, Instagram looks a certain way. And then the reality is you're doing a lot of stuff that you wouldn't qualify as like, this is dreamy. Well, yeah, because I'm, you know, 60 talks, like I do a lot of speaking and I think I would get really burnt out giving 60 talks in a year. Yeah, I I enjoy it. I mean, the thing for me is I've started to do meetups before the talks. So in addition to doing the talk, I'll say to the internet, hey, I'm going to be at this spot at 7 a.m. Let's get together. And I get to connect with people and and share ideas and hear their ideas. So I love I'm an introvert in that I like one on one. I get really awkward. But in a crowd, I really enjoy that. Um, I'm so almost that I'm almost the reverse. Like in a crowd, I don't know what I would do. Like going from meetups to talks to dinners to meetups, uh, it's too much. I get I would get tired. Yeah, and some of it I do get tired of it. But I I think the thing for me, I love to make people laugh. And you're you know you know the space I'm in. Everybody is like a lot of people are super boring, and they write boring books challenging you to have an exciting life. And it's just so for me, the chance to get to show up and tell some jokes and hopefully challenge some people. It's just I just have a good time doing it. So I 
I'm definitely a writer who speaks, not a speaker who writes. And so writing's my first my first kind of priority, but the rest of it I really enjoy too. And you also do radio. I, I've seen you on your uh, Dear John segments. Oh yeah, yeah. We've done a, we've done a couple of those. Um, it's all that stuff is fun. And I was really excited about this talk because I think there's a ton of overlap. I was reading what you wrote about self sabotage recently. And as a guy who's got a book coming out right now, like what a perfect time for me to pull some self-sabotage. And I thought that was a great idea you shared. Well, what's an example where you've self-sabotaged yourself? Because everyone has examples of it. Um, I think I think there's a lot of examples. One is that I never was really into email, like marketing and having an email list. And I would make up all these excuses like, oh, it's so like nobody cares about email. And it was just because I was lazy and didn't know how to do it. So I'd focus on like the kind of candy of like, I'm on Twitter and look at me building Twitter. And now I'm like eight years late to the have an email list conversation. And I really self-sabotage that part of being able to reach out to people. Well, uh, one thing I can say, it's never too late. Uh, you know, I self-sabotage myself in that way as well. I felt like, oh, everybody's already got like a million people on their list. So I'm never going to build a list. And everybody was telling me to start one. This was about two or three years ago. And I started one and there's all sorts of ways to grow it. Like you offer uh, free giveaways and so on and, and you grow your list and eventually it becomes a powerful tool. Yeah, and I've, I've started one and I'm slowly building. I think another self-sabotage is when you create something and you're afraid to share it with people because you think you're going to become this self-promotional jerk. Like we always think of the most extreme person we know and then we go, oh, I wrote a book. I don't want to bother people. I don't want to tweet too much about it. Or And I think you can – I think there's a temptation for me to self-sabotage that way. Well, let's talk about let's talk about that because your career uh, – you know, your, your book, your most recent book, Do Over, is about something that everybody – is going through now in this economy like uh we're, we're all jumping not only from job to job but industry to industry and career to career and you discuss kind of you know a method a, a positive method of doing this you know you build your career savings account you discuss and 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 do over sort of about how you build this and how you make it work for you and i want to talk though specifically about when you have made these career jumps so like you went from auto trader to suddenly you were you were kind of like you had one foot in auto trader and one foot in the motivational space. How did that kind of come about? Um, it was slow at first. Um, I would I would go do speaking gigs with vacation days. So well, why, would, why did you think you could? Why did you think you could be motivational? I th yeah, I think that's a good question. I mean, sometimes I think I'll see like a 22-year-old life coach and I'll be like, that's a weird thing to be at 22, <laughs> um, a life coach. But no, I, I've i always felt motivational that way. And I started to like, I really, my first motivation was, hey, here's how to balance your day job and your dream job. And I, I spoke from my experience because that's what I was doing. And so I think the books I like to write are from the trenches where I go, hey, I, I went through this thing and here's a lot of ways I did it incorrectly. And here's a handful that I felt like it went well, you know, what's your experience been? So I started to do that at auto trader and started to see, you know, some lessons and started to figure out, you know, I'm doing radio interviews during lunch breaks, you know, in my car and I'm doing all this stuff on the side of my job and it starts working. And I wonder, I wonder if there's other people that would like to try this too. What do you mean um, it starts working? Well, it starts working in the sense of like the one free gig turns into, you know, you do a bunch of free speaking gigs and then 
I eventually start getting relationships where people are like, hey, we have a handful of dollars and would like you to speak here. Would you like to do that? And I was like, I like handfuls of dollars. That sounds great, you know, and it starts building slowly. Well, I think, um, I think that's an interesting uh, theme that runs through a lot of uh, my guests, which is that you kind of have to give before you receive. And I think you, you sort of show, okay, you're at autotrader.net doing whatever or autotrader.com doing whatever. And uh, you, you start speaking, doing this free stuff. Because people want content. They don't care where you come from. If you're good content for their audience, they want you. And then eventually they pay you. Yeah, and if you're consistent. Um, What do you mean by that? Well, if you consistently give the same level of content um, and you're you're consistently going – like when I first started my blog, which wasn't even an original idea. There was stuff white people like, the satire of Caucasia. And I just – it always bummed me out that Christians rip off popular culture – and put a little God flavor on it and say like, got milk becomes got God. So I thought, why don't I talk about that problem by committing that problem? And I thought I'd write about it for a week and it it started to grow it. I had 4,000 people show up on like day nine. And so I would do four or five blog posts a day on that blog at the beginning to kind of really create some content. And now as far as giving away free stuff, like all the meetups I do are again, me saying, Hey, I'm going to like, I did one in Gilbert, Arizona at a barbecue restaurant, like on Monday, and I got there and it was awkward because it was really crowded. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to stand in this corner and hopefully these 50 people that came from the internet to hear me share some ideas and I want to hear their ideas. Like, we'll figure it out over the sound of a loud barbecue restaurant. And that wasn't a paid event. And I'm doing, I did probably 30 of those last year or 30, you know, 30 of those in the last two years. And it's that free stuff where you go, you give and you give and you give. And I think you're right. Well, you know, but you said, though, in terms of consistency, and and I think you mentioned this in Quitter as well, that you would, um, and maybe it was you who mentioned this, that you would almost sometimes obsess, like, uh, is the quality staying up on on the blog? Like, are are people going to just suddenly drop off if I have one bad blog post? And this does become an obsessive thing for bloggers, and I wonder if it's true. Like, I wonder if, yes, when you have a bad post, you might lose some people. But when you have a good post, you're either going to get them back or you're going to get more new people back. So I wonder if, like, an obsession on uh, the highest possible quality is not giving yourself enough permission to do the occasional lower quality but more experimental uh, things you might be thinking about. Oh, 100%. I think the, the problem is the bigger your audience, the more you're afraid to lose it. Like, cause if you have five readers, you can, you can go crazy all you want. Cause you're like, I can find five more people. If you have 500,000 readers, there's a part of you. If you're not careful, you start to just write what you think they want you to write because you're afraid to lose half a million people. Yeah. So, yeah. I think every blogger goes through that. And I think, how would you recommend not feeling those feelings? <laughs> yeah, how, if I know, if I figure that out, I'd tell you. Like, people always go, where do you come up with your ideas about fear? And I go, I'm afraid of a lot of things, and then I write them down. Um, so I, I think for me, some of it is not reading, you know, certain comments. Um, not, you know, I've, if when I get negative feedback, I'm not, maybe there's these people that are really strong and can just bounce it off them like Superman. I obsess about it if I'm not careful. And I research that person's life and just, it becomes this rabbit hole. And so some of it for me is writing as if I don't have an audience and writing quickly so that the fear kind of can't catch up and then, you know, sharing it before I've critiqued it to death. 
Well, it's funny, and I was just talking to my wife about this because I got some negative comments yesterday that I really didn't like, and there's an evolutionary uh, aspect of this. If you kind of go into the jungle and to your left you see an apple tree and to your right you see a lion, the survivors, your ancestors, noticed the lion and ignored the apple tree. (laughs) Or else yeah. they wouldn't be your ancestors. So yeah. we, we have this evolutionary bias to pay a lot more attention to the negative feedback our brain shows us. Well, and the, the reality is that the feedback you got yesterday wasn't something trying to physically eat you. Like none of the feedback, at right. least in what you and I do, nobody is trying to murder us. Um, hopefully. I, I talked to a cab driver um, in Houston, I said, oh, where are you from? He said, I'm from Iraq. And I just said, do you ever get to go back? And he said, no, they're trying to kill me. And when somebody says that, you ask a follow-up. And so Al-Qaeda had tried to assassinate him like a handful of times. And I thought, okay, I was just about to tell this dude about <laughs> somebody on Twitter who was mean to me, like really mean. And like so like at the end of the day, you and I don't have lions. We have difficult situations. But if you keep it in perspective, hopefully you're able to laugh at it and go, those four people, Mark Dragonheart underscore seven, whatever. <laughs> well, okay, so let's talk about difficult situations. So you're at Auto Trader, and this be- this went from being maybe a nice job for you to being a difficult situation. Like you were traveling all over the place, you were working on your blog and then your book, uh, and you couldn't do everything. And but at the same time, like a lot of people say to me, oh, I have an idea. When should I raise money and quit my job? And the answer is don't quit your job. Like you need to go through that experience of having a crappy job while working on your dream idea. And and you definitely went through that. And like what was the path of getting you ultimately more and more to your dream situation? Well, the, the first part was writing the blog. And so like getting up early before work to write. I mean, you and I are so aligned on that idea. I meet so many people that go, I want to be a writer. And I'll say, well, do you write before work? And they go, no. Or do you want to, do you write at night? No. Do you go to writing conferences on the weekend? No. Do you read books about writing? No. Well, then you don't want to be a writer. Like right. you like the, the word writer, just none of the action, which is unfortunate because that's where it happens. And so people think they magic, they'll quit their jobs and then they'll do all this hustle and you can do both. And so I just started to get up at 5am and work on things before I went into work. And it actually made me a better employee because I wasn't holding auto trader accountable to letting me write a ton. You know, I had already done it for the day. Like I felt like, okay, I've already scratched that itch. And so I started to do that on the side, started to use vacation days to go to speaking gigs. And I got my first book deal because large part because of my blog traffic. And Um, now you say nobody's tried to kill you but stuff christians like must have pissed off a lot of uh uh christians yeah and they're, they're we're a difficult crowd i always the challenge for you know as a christian is that when i share an idea with a business community the business community goes they critique the idea when i share it with a christian audience they critique my soul and it becomes this very personal kind of thing and so yeah there were a handful of people that didn't understand i was joking um, I had this whole – I remember I did a blog post about – I was pretending to judge people that use the table of contents to look up things in the Bible because it means they don't read it enough. And I said I personally took mine out and I rolled it up into a chauffeur horn um, like the Israelites to blow when I call my kids down to family devotionals. Now, clearly, I'm not doing that. And somebody was like, how dare you, and really got mad. And I just – I felt empathy for that person because they grew up somewhere where they were that judged and their their Christianity was that unfun that they thought I was saying that seriously. 
But you know, did anyone ever do uh, uh, like a post what what John a- what John Acuff likes and like totally you know skewer you? Oh yeah, yeah, totally. A handful of people did that um, and would say you know. Or I remember somebody wrote me uh, a radio person wrote me an email and said, "Do you have a theologian write uh, read everything you write before you post it?" And oh that was God. such a passive aggressive. Like, yeah, I have a pocket theologian, and I you know. <laughs> Like I have a professional theologian whose life is so wasted that I send him all my posts about rolled up chauffeur horns. Like, yes, of course I'm clearing everything through a theologian. That's how a blog works. So, and I so was like, oh, but it sounds like you deal with then with a lot of the the hate with with humor. Like you figure out a way to kind of like uh, you know twist it around. Eventually, like eventually I do. In the moment, I deal with it with you know paralyzing frustration that prevents me from being creative. Um, yeah, because there's no, there, there's no. Uh, I think it was Stephen Pressfield who says, uh, uh, "Don't take the drama. You know, drama should happen on the page, not in your life." And so, when you are frustrated or anxious about something, that does take away from the writing. There's no kind of romance to drama in life if you want to be a writer. No, it steals the creativity, um, it, and it sucks it away. And but I do think that part of how I like to write is that I'm either going to have success or a story. Like, it's either going to work or I'm going to get a story out of it. And I think, you know, for me, listening to you talk to Brian Kopelman on his podcast and when you had him on yours and talking about your story and the things that have worked or the relationships that fell apart that didn't work and the story that came out of that, I think you're the same kind of writer. And so for me, I, I remember I did a big meetup um, in 2008, or I thought it was going to be big, which was such an ego play. And I, I told all these people, like, it's going to be huge. And my in-laws were excited. They printed up a thousand stickers for me oh to give gosh. out. And I was, I, I didn't even have a book at the time. So there's nothing to sign. And I thought the line would be so long that people would need something to do while they waited to, I guess, I guess bask in my glory. And I made a quiz for them to fill out while they waited. And I waited in that room for 90 minutes and two people came. And one was a friend who came to encourage me. And the other one was some dad that said, hey, my daughter likes your blog here, call her. And I had this 30 second awkward conversation. And I felt like a huge loser, but I, I had my friend take a photo of me in this sea of empty chairs. And then I turned it into this blog post and I turned it into this idea um, and shared about that because so often we only share about the, the success stuff. And I just think that creates this huge myth for people that are really in the trenches trying to do something. You know, it's funny because I actually never uh, blog about success stuff. It's only negativity that creates a good story. Think about every story you've ever read in your life. Like something bad happens to the main character and he has to resolve it one way or the other by the end. Yeah, the, the good stories never start with, so I was born rich. You know, you go like, oh, that's amazing. Like, I want to hear Donald Trump's story about being born rich. That's fascinating. No, you're. And the other thing is that, like, the failure, the hardship, that stuff's relatable because everybody's had a moment like that. And again, like, I think it's important that you continue writing those kind of things because the internet creates this weird focus where, like, people look a certain way on Instagram. Everybody posts the, like, here's my office today picture where it's, like, them overlooking the ocean. And they never post the reality of, like, here I am in Cleveland, Ohio, and in Hampton Inn overlooking the highway, and this is where I'm writing my book today because I'm on the road, you know, and so I think you need a balance. So I, I want to kind of summarize your, your career just real quickly, and then I have a bunch of questions about it. You went from, you know, auto trader to, to working at um, with Dave Ramsey, who's this enormous, you know, financial, self-help, motivational guy. He had a show on 
Fox Business. He has tons of books. He speaks everywhere. He was helping you build your platform while you were writing, you know, at least Quitter and Start. And I don't know if you started writing Do Over with him or that maybe. No, that came after. So, so, so then you left his organization and maybe that was the impetus for Do Over because you suddenly had to do over what he had created for you. Um, and, and in do over, I, I kind of want to, you know, right in the beginning, you kind of get to the, the meat of it, which is you have this, you know, concept you call the career savings account, which is a function of the relationships you've built, plus your skills, plus your character times hustle. So, um, you know, obviously you must have built great relationships when you were working with Dave Ramsey and, and doing all your books and stuff. Uh, you, you, you probably built up great skills like watching his organization in action and, and he has a great organization underneath him. You obviously have character that you've built up over the years and you write for a Christian audience uh, and, and for I, I sort of feel like you write for everyone. I don't know I don't know if Christians is something you limit yourself to. Your last three books are for everyone. Yeah, the last three books have been business books. And so I, you know, that was a do-over. That was, you know, my first book was a Christian satire. And then I really was deliberate to say, okay, I'd love to be on a business shelf. Um, yeah, but, you know, even even Dave kind of um, somewhat writes for, uh, I don't want to say he writes for a Christian audience, but he addresses that audience. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the, the events are held in churches, um, you know, when he... When he speaks, and that's that's the biggest part of the platform is they do financial financial peace university in churches. Um, so did did leaving his organization um, inspire you to do do over? Oh yeah, I, I wrote this book because I needed it first. Um, I went the transition from that was massive, and the first six months I didn't I didn't leave with something to do next. Um, I just knew it was time for me to, to for me to do something different. Um, and so, yeah, I, I wrote the book because I was trying to figure out, okay, how do I navigate a transition? And then I started to wonder, are other people having the same experience and what's working for them? Um, so yeah, I didn't do over wasn't on the list of things I wanted to write. It was when I got out of, of that job, I thought, okay, let me, let me look at life. Well, well, let me ask you this. Like often, you know, I've been, I've been kind of, uh, blogging in the particular style that I blog in for, let's say, five or six years. And often I have to really stretch to find, you know, new stories about how or, or new ways to describe about what's happened to me in the past. And, you know, I'm constantly searching my my own life for content. Did you come to a point, and maybe you came to this point when you were still at Dave Ramsey's organization, did you come to a point where you felt like you couldn't just say the same things over and over again um, and then you felt such a need to say something new that you left. Because I don't think you've ever really talked about why you left Dave Ramsey. No, I think that was part of it. I mean, I think if you read Start, um, there's there's some of that where it was, you know, my story at the time was I, I had been given this great amount of success by by being on his platform, you know. Um, and that that's a difficult story to relate to um, in a lot of ways. I mean, it would be really dishonest of me, James, to ever sell like a, a PDF on like how to become a big author because step one should be be connected to a guy who has 7 million radio listeners. Like that, you know, how dare me not acknowledge that, that that's part of the story. I don't know that I left, like I don't think I'd ever say I left to create the content, but I think I did realize there were two kind of roads going in different directions. 
Um, and I knew which one I was supposed to be on. And it's not easy to leave somewhere where you've got the most money you've ever had and the most fame you've ever had and the most attention. But if it's the right thing to do, it's the right thing to do. Well, how did you define right thing? Like the, the night before you left his organization and, and, and you just said this was clearly like the best situation you, you, you had been in, at least from a career point of view. So so picture the night before you left his organization, you were, you and your wife, I imagine, were discussing it and maybe you were discussing it with other friends or colleagues. Like what was going through your mind? Uh, just raw amounts of terror. Um, just like super anxious. We didn't sleep well for six months, you know, before or after this decision. Um, and that's part of the myth of bravery is people think it feels good. It doesn't, it feels like not sleeping or wanting to throw up or, you know, being anxious. And so a big part of it was I had gotten wise counsel from people like people that could tell me the truth and knew me well enough. And, you know, it wasn't like it was this, you know, overnight decision, um, so, yeah, but yeah, I felt, of, of course I felt, you know, just overwhelmed. Um, even if it's the right decision, you, like if it's a big decision like that where, where there's not a going back moment, yeah, it's scary. I mean, well, well, what were the factors? Because I've been through some decisions like that before in the past, and it's never black or white. There's huge gray area. Sure, so, sure. So, like, like when I left, like I had a great job that I loved – uh, in the nineties, I worked at HBO and then I left to start my own business. And that was an incredibly complicated decision. It took me 18 months basically to make that decision. What were, what were some of the factors in your decision of, of why you left? Well, I, I really wanted to be the best writer that I could be. Um, and I felt like working with a, a New York publisher, really being deliberate about the publishing process would help me become a better writer. Um, and that I'd have more freedom to do that on my own. Um, so becoming, you know, becoming the best writer became something that really mattered to me. My wife, um, my wife said, do you want to be great or just greatly known? And that was kind of a punch in the stomach moment, you know, of am I trying to get really popular or do I really want to be great at the craft of what I care about? Um, and you can, you know, I think you can become great and become greatly known. I think it's hard to go the other way. I don't know that Kim Kardashian will ever do a craft, you know, or ever lean into it, you know, because she's already greatly known. And, and so that was a, that was a question that I asked. And then I, I just started to be like that organization is so full of entrepreneurs and kind of the entrepreneurial spirit that it was hard not to want to do my own thing. And I never would have self-identified as an entrepreneur until that season. And it was like a greenhouse moment where I started to see the tools that I needed to try it on my own existed in a way that I didn't feel like they had, um, you know, in the same way. And, and I started to think, okay, I want to be able to have the freedom to explore the next creative thought in the way that I can. And part of the benefit of being with a big organization is that you have a whole team pushing behind you. And one of the challenges is that there's expectations of a whole team. Um, well, well, but here's, here's an organization where they actually – paid you to do what you love like you were paid you to write books and speak and uh you know again did you do you, do you think maybe there was an element of self-sabotage there leaving that organization particularly think, fairly quickly like you were there a few years but not like you hadn't um built a career there yet yeah i i think um there's things i look back now 18 months later that i would definitely do differently um i like think what? i got entitled um, I got entitled to the stuff that was happening as if I had created it. 
Um, you know, wh- whether it was, you know, the access to the team, um, the talented people that would work there. And I kind of, I felt like now I look back and I go, wow, I was really a jerk in some situations where I didn't see all the hard work that was going into say like the start book launch. Um, where now that I'm out on my own and I've got, you know, a great team in Penguin and other people, but like I did an event yesterday and I was at Costco buying brownie bites and cookies for the event because I'm in charge of catering when I throw an event because I'm just a guy. And so I think there were times that I, I got lost in that and didn't see all the people that were working really hard on stuff for projects that I wasn't paying their salaries. Dave was because he built this team. So that'd be one thing I'd do differently. It's funny because like, so I've, you know, run various companies, both good and both for better or for worse. And I always call uh, entitlement the disease. So once an employee gets the disease, they basically have to be fired immediately. Yeah, it's horrible. Because <laughs> they, they're never going to, you weren't going to solve your entitlement issue while you were there. That's probably true. No, and I, and I had, you know, it's taken me 18 humbling months to kind of work through that. Um, well, yeah. what, what's been humbling about it? Like, so like you said, you had to buy the cookies for these, you know, events, but, but what else? Like, have you ever had a moment where you figured, Hey, maybe I should just pick up the phone and try to get that job back or, or no, 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 I've never, I've, I've had fear definitely because I think in every big decision there's fear, but I haven't had regret and I think they're different. Um, and so I've, I've always known that was the right decision, um, but in moments when it hasn't been easy, um, I, you know, like I, re, I rebuilt my blogs and that, that wasn't easy. Um, I relaunched one and that, you know, I, to tell you the truth, I got to skip some levels because of the relationship there where I went from speaking to 80 people to 8,000 in a month because Dave said, hey, come on, come on this stage I've built. And, and that's where part of the entitlement was. Like where I, I skipped some of the, you're bringing 40 books and you're trying to sell them yourself and you're setting everything up. And so th- those are things I look back on and go, oh, good grief, like the ego. You know, but OK, so yes, the entitlement's a problem, but I don't know, necessarily agree with the fact that you skipped some levels because clearly Dave hired you for a reason. You you said no twice to job offers there and only the third time you said yes. It's because you knew what value you were bringing and Dave brought you on and that value paid off for him as well. Yeah, and I, I, I do agree with that. And I think there's a there's probably a level of false humility in that in that I'm you know, I'm I feel like I'm good at what I do. There's a handful of things that I think I do really well at. Um, and, and public speaking is, is one that I've worked really hard on. Um, it wasn't, you know, I don't show up that day to do it. It's been a process. So there, yeah, it definitely benefited, you know, both of us. I mean, both, both of us got something out of it. Um, so, but what I mean by that is like, even just the email example, I didn't go through the process of growing that slowly, or I didn't, you know, I didn't have what I think are some, some kind of learn how to do something moments. And now that I'm out on my own, I'm having them. And it's weird because the perception of my platform is different than some of the reality and that people go, oh, you got a New York Times bestseller. Like, what's your assistant team like? What's your, you know, how many staff do you have? And I th- and people send me their resume to work on my, for my company. And it's me and my wife in our kitchen. I think I'll have to pull up another chair. And so I just think there's some basic running of business things that I'm learning that feel very much like kindergarten. Well, now let's, let's reel it all the way back. Where, where are you from initially? Um, North Carolina, but I grew up in Massachusetts. 
So you, you grew up from ages what to what in Massachusetts? Uh, first grade to college, and then I moved back after college for about three or four years. And you were in Alabama for a while, right? Yeah, I went to school in Birmingham. Yeah, so how many people who grow up in Massachusetts say to themselves, boy, I really want to go to college in Alabama? It's, it's very popular. People say, I got to get to Alabama, is the phrase. There's T-shirts. It says, go Red Sox, and the back says, get me to Bama. Right. Um, yeah. No, that, I, I was. I uh, got rejected from UNC. Um, it's where my dad went, my mom went, um, and I was out of state and didn't have the GPA or the, the class ranking to get into University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And I started looking at a bunch of different schools and really liked this school in Birmingham. Um, and my dad's a pastor and they had a great scholarship for pastors, kids and financially, like, I don't know, maybe pastors these days are rich. Like we did not grow up with like sweet, sweet pastor cash. And so he thought that would be good. And so I ended up going down to Birmingham and ended up loving it. And when you got there, were you like the only kid and the only freshman who was from Massachusetts? Yeah. Oh yeah. Did, did Did people like beat you up? No, but I was I was confounded why strangers wanted to know how my day was going. You know, like nobody nobody at the grocery store in Massachusetts is like, "How's your day been today?" And you, you know, if you said that at Stop and Shop in Peabody, Mass, people would be like, "What's it to you?" And so, like on <laughs> campus, it was really weird when people like random people were like, "Hey, how are you?" I was kind of standoffish, like, "Why do you care?" You know, like, and maybe that's not a Massachusetts thing. Maybe I was I just didn't have the right attitude. No, I do think that's a North versus South thing, uh, in part. So, uh, but I, I would imagine though people maybe thought you here. Here's here's my assumption, and I could be totally off base. I would imagine that the average person who you dealt with when they found out you were from Massachusetts probably thought you were looking down on them. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. And the, like my freshman year was insane. I went to an all boys Catholic school high school from sophomore to senior year because I, I didn't do well freshman year in public school and I kind of won like a free trip to Catholic school for my parents. Um, and so I had that experience and then I came down and freshman year I got a 2-4 um, first semester and I was going to lose my scholarships unless I got a 3-0. And so over winter I just created like this. I remember thinking I'm going to be perfect next semester because I have to be. And I created this like perfect version of myself and I ended up getting a 4-0. And like a 3.01 average for the year. And people would come up to me and go, I like you so much better than last semester. Like you are a real jerk. And so it was a freshman year was an interesting experience. And then so what happened? So you graduate college, you know, a few years later. Uh, what, what was your first thing that you did? I, I interned at an ad agency in Birmingham. Um, I love to write. Um, advertising is still one of my favorite things because I always tell people, like, if you want to know how to motivate people, read great ads. Or, like, a great way for a small business to understand a community is to find somebody speaking to that community and then, re- re- like, re-engineer the ad. Like, reverse engineer it and go, they spent millions to say these words. Why did they say these words? What do they know? Like, how- they can afford focus groups. I can't. And so I fell in love with advertising um, during school and worked at an ad agency. And then I got tired of that and ended up moving back home to Massachusetts and worked at another one and got fired from that one. Um, Why'd you get fired? She's a terrible employee. Um, I just didn't know how to have a job. Um, I really was just just lazy and kind of some of that entitlement again. And then I got a job at Staples um, and was one of their first writers for staples.com. And this was back, you remember these days when they were like, everybody who touched the internet is going to make $10 million. And we like, I remember we were going to take staples.com stock public. And this guy (laughs) said, this guy said to me, 
you'll remember this day when you're sitting on a boat in 10 years and it never went public. And like all the snacks that they gave the dot-com division, we knew the economy was doing like was challenging based on the frequency and quality of the snacks that we got in our free snack area for the dot-com division. Cause eventually it went from like every couple hours, they were giving you more food to like once a day to like once a week, somebody put a Snapple in like the fridge by the dot-com department. It's funny that they thought you needed sugar. Like just like how parents kind of feed their kids. Oh yeah. Well they did that and we had a playroom. They were like, we're going to design a really cool play space, but because it didn't have walls and it was open, it eventually became the judge people who are goofing off space. Like you would stand up and see who was playing air hockey and be like, look at that guy. So lazy. Well, so, okay. So you're at staples.com. You you know, you know, the interesting thing about advertising, I think people think there's a big difference between advertising writers and let's say Ernest Hemingway, but there's really not like a huge gap in the sense that both sides of that gap are trying to convey a message as simply as possible so it can be read by people who will buy into that vision. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, one of the best things I've ever read was a, was an ad, and it was Range Rover. And it had, I think, what, 10 characters, and all it said was, not a, the. And with that one line, not a, the, they communicated blue blood and polo and wealth, and you want to be part of this. And it was brilliant, and it was 10 characters. So I think there's a lot of creativity and and beauty that goes into advertising yeah because you're 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 it's like it's like on twitter you're given like given like limited space but you have to say something meaningful so every word has to be the tip of an iceberg and if it's a quality ad or quality content there's a huge iceberg underneath um that nobody can see but it's there and if, if it isn't quality if there isn't a strong vision behind it then all then all there is really is the tip of the iceberg and that's the entire iceberg for, for well, each word. Oh, without it, without a doubt. I, I, I love the idea of the, the best stories are the ones you write for yourself. And by that, I mean, like, there's a headline that's a catalyst for a memory you have. Like, you have decades of personal James vocabulary I don't have access to. But if I, as a writer, can start the story and leave enough room for you to tell yourself the story with your memories and your ideas. Like, most blog writers, most book writers, they make it so full about themselves. There's nowhere for me to tell my story. But if I can do that and say, okay, this is a line about, you know, about running off the road. And this is about you and your daughter and it's icy and you've gone off into somebody's yard and you're stuck and it becomes this community neighborhood thing. And, and you can, and I can kind of trigger that and evoke that then like, it's completely different. Yeah. Great. Oh, and I see you've been reading my blog. Thank you very much. Yeah. 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 So, so, okay. So, so then you're going, you, you eventually make your way back down South. You're at auto trade and, but something's still bothering you. And I think, What's interesting in your story, a lot of people are, they feel they have like dead end jobs, but they just don't know what to do next. Like they don't know what career or what their passion is, but you kind of had this passion from the beginning. You wanted to write, you wanted to speak, and really based on what I see in your books, you wanted to be a combination of motivational and use your skills at humor and so on. And and you were able to make that jump, but it, it, it took a while and it was hard. Yeah, it's it's taken a, a long time, you know, and it, it's not, you know. I, and you're I still did, doing it. I'm still doing it. I still, like, I did it, like, the meetup ended up being great, but on Monday it was awkward to show up to that barbecue restaurant and try to figure it out. People had to wait an hour in line before they could come back and hang out, and so 
you're not done. Like that's why you got to find something where if the money doesn't show up as fast as you want and it never does or the results or the affirmation or like you can't do it for that because you'll stop as soon as that stuff doesn't show up. Well, that's a good point because that's true. Uh, I would say every single guest I've ever had on this podcast, that's what they would have said because none of them sort of showed up and were instant successes. Like, look, you know, you know, I've interviewed Brian Koppelman. You've been on his podcast. He was uh, an entertainment lawyer in the record industry for years before, and then spent like three or four years trying to figure out what his first movie he would write would be. Like, Well, and then did the comedy thing for a year and a half yeah. to try to get unstuck. And so, yeah, all those... I think people hate that part of stories, but it's true. Like, I spent four years in trying to, you know, in journalism school. I then did, I've been writing professionally full time for 16 years. And so it's the other side of, you know, it's fun to go, hey, here's the book, you know, and it's never fun to talk about the 16, but I think that's the stuff that makes it matter. So, so why, so later on, so then you, you, you jump to Dave Ramsey's organization. Great stuff is happening. You decide to leave. Why have you never really talked about why you left? Part of it was there was, you know, HR contracts and it was privacy. And there was things that, you know, like leaving another job, um, you know, it, there's just things that you don't get to talk about. Um, and that was one of, honestly, that was one of the hard parts was that most of my story, at least blogging wise, had been, hey, here's what's going on in my life. Here's honesty and transparency and then that happened and out of respect for the relationship I had and and you know also contractually I had to be really careful about that um, and plus I had I had benefited tremendously from that relationship and had a had a good three years there and so that was hard right after that because the audience rightfully so said hey wait a second you're the guy that shares everything and now you're not sharing this yeah so how did you deal with that poorly is that I don't know if that's uh, if that's a long enough answer. Um, it's it's been you know it's been challenging, and I'm able to talk a little more about it and say because hey, everyone and I'm sorry to interrupt because everyone's going to just start. It's like you said earlier, everyone's going to start filling in the blanks, but here you haven't given enough information, so the blanks can go all over the place. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing I learned is that in the absence of a story, people will write their own. Um, that's a good way to so, put it. I just, I had to get okay with that. And it becomes like worrying about what people think of you and don't think of you, you know, um, where people started to kind of make up their own stories and, and it's frustrating, but I understand it. Like I, I completely understand it. Um, and so I've tried my best to, out of respect for the, the, you know, the organization and, and for all the people that I still love that work there to say, Hey, it was a great opportunity. I'm doing this other opportunity. And they go, well, we want exact details. And for me, like at the end of the day, they wanted to play football and I wanted to play basketball and it doesn't make football good or bad. I mean, the reality is, to be honest with you, James, I don't write anything about finances. That's never been what I'm good at, what I care about, what I'm passionate about. The name of their building was Financial Peace Plaza. They right. were a finance based company. So even when I took that job, a lot of my friends said, wait, 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 what? <laughs> what? You know, like how did you know, like, OK, so you're going to be the artist in that building? Uh, OK, like, well, you know. We'll see what see how that goes, and so eventually those differences, even though there were good stuff that was happening, and there's a part of me that I'm writing all these books, daring people to be brave and take risks, and there's you know, for me anyway, I had to try that. Well, and, and you know, it's interesting because I think I hate the phrase personal finance because I think that's just a made up 
me personally, I think that's a made up field. There, there is no such thing because it, it changes so much over the years. And I think the direction you're going with your books is where the economy's going, which is just that people can't just think of their job as this lifetime adventure. You're going to have to do over many times in your life. You're going to have to be a quitter many times in your life, not in a negative sense as you put, you know, and and you express this. It's not a negative thing way to put it, but you're going to have to uh, quit, restart, do over. And that's really what personal finance has become now. Yeah. And for me, that is that sense of like the gold watch days are gone, you know, Um, and the sooner you kind of accept that and see the fun in that, um, and the joy in that, then I think you get to kind of experience it and go, all right, there's, there's a lot that's interesting. The other thing for me though, is we've got this kind of entrepreneur glorification culture right now where I meet people that feel guilty that they're not starting their own business. And my whole thing is the 70% of Americans who are dissatisfied with work, a hundred percent of them are not meant to start businesses. I, like, I, I totally agree with that. By the way, being an entrepreneur sucks. Like it yeah. sucks really bad. <laughs> Like I'm it's, so glad to hear you say that. No, I mean, I, I have only been suicidal in my life when I've been running a business. Yeah. So so what people don't realize is, is that having multiple sources of income is is different from having a job, but it's also different from being a pure entrepreneur where you start a business and now you've created your own job. Like having multiple sources of income, like books, speaking, maybe selling other products or information products or advice or whatever, that's a different kind of career that people are starting to do now and is, this, I think, a better way to be independent. Oh, I, I love it. And, the, you know, the reality is if one of those things goes away or goes through a season where it's not working, there's other things to kind of support it. I mean, I, you know, I love kind of figuring out my career that way, that it's there's a palette of things that I get to do. So so let's talk about then with do over, you know, you, you base it on this idea of the career savings account, which I think is really smart. And it's, a, again, a function of relationships, skills, character, and hustle. So what are relationships to you? Relationships to me are just the people that lock arms with you during, you know, a do-over moment. Um, and I really talk about them all the way from casual relationships, which I call boomerang relationships, where they don't end. They just go off in a different direction, and you never know when they're going to come back. Um, all the way up to advocates, um, kind of my phrase for mentor, someone who's 10 years ahead of you and an experience and is able to give you some ideas about where you're headed. Okay. And then, you know, there's this notion of, um, I saw a study recently about strong ties versus weak ties. So your weak ties maybe are like your Twitter followers or Facebook friends, but they're not, let's say relatives, which are your strong ties. But it turns out that people's weak ties are far more powerful in terms of forming um, revenue opportunities than your strong ties for some reason. Uh, oh, yeah, and that's the that's the whole point of the kind of the boomerang casual relationships. I mean, one that's been awesome for me is I interacted with Southwest on their Twitter account, um, and we, jo- we joked back and forth, and they became kind of a friend, like the person running it. And I had him come to this dinner that my wife and I were doing in Dallas, and I got to meet him. And then around the time of the book coming out, he said, hey – would you like to be in the magazine that's in 500,000 seats of every plane that we have and have a full page story about your new book? Like, would that be helpful? And I was like, I guess. And it became, you know, like it was out of this, this casual Twitter relationship. So I've, there's been a million of those little stories where 
I go, wow, it's like I might not see that guy every day, but that was a really fun thing that we got to do together. And how, how would you recommend people cultivate? Like, let's say that's a seed that you planted. Like, how would you recommend people start to cultivate those? We'll see. Like, this is where, again, like we've got great overlap in that part of the character part is generosity. And you preach, which I love the idea of give those ideas to somebody. Like if you've got ideas, give them to somebody else. Let them, you know, let them use them. Um, right. So for me, the generosity of going, okay, I'm going to, you know, there's the bravery aspect. I'm going to go to this meetup or I'm going to go do this thing that feels uncomfortable, but welcome to trying to chase your life, like chase a dream. Like if you want less awkwardness in your life, just accept a day job and phone it in for 40 years and move to Florida. Um, if you want, you know, more awkwardness, try to do something like this. And so putting yourself out there and going, hey, I have some ideas. Um giving those ideas to somebody else in a way that they, they can receive them. Um, you start relationships that way. Or even, you know, I'll meet sometimes, and I'm sure this happens to you, people say, hey, John, like, I'll, I'll never have met him before. They'll go, will you mentor me? And that's like asking a stranger, like, will you marry me? Um, <laughs> and the far better question is, what's one book you'd recommend I read? Like, I really like the way you think. What's one book I should read? And you start a relationship that way. And maybe you earn the, the ability to ask them one other question over time. And I think that, you know, you're natural. like you, I, I feel like you work hard at that kind of thing. And I think that when people do, they start to figure out these casual relationships and you don't know where it's going to go. Like somebody you worked with five years ago, James, you might see next week and they go, Hey, I've got this opportunity. And you came to mind for some reason. You go, awesome. We haven't talked in five years, but let's do it. Well, you know, I, I actually go back through my emails. Like, let's say I started Gmail around 2008 or 2007. I forget what year. And uh, I'll go back to my earliest emails and I'll find an email chain that I never responded to and I'll respond as if it was that day, like that, that I got the last <laughs> email. And I usually, that's usually a great way to jumpstart these relationships again. I love it. Uh, that is, yeah, I've heard you talk about that before where you'll respond to somebody um, that they'll ask you for a question and it's, yeah, I think that's great. So you do little things like that. Um, we, or, you know, there's a woman I put in the book, um, Sarah Harmeyer, she had her dad build a table, a 20 person table in her backyard in Dallas. And she wanted to meet her neighbors. And so she invited them to dinner and 91 people walked down the driveway. Wow. And so she started this thing called neighbor's table. And since then she served dinner to 2000 people in her backyard and West Elm has gotten excited about it. She's done some, some neighbor's table in West Elm. And it's, you know, when you had Seth on the second time on your podcast, you asked him this question, okay, like I'm an average person, what do I do? And he used, I think he used cricket as an example. Well, here's like, you put yourself out there, you start a cricket blog. And then, you know, like maybe <laughs> in six months you're selling antique, you know, vintage cricket sticks. Um, and it's that kind of thing. You put yourself out there. Yeah. Well, okay. So skills, this leads straight into skills. What, what are you referring to there? Well, my big thing is relationships get you the first gig, but skills get you the second. Because, James, if you've got somebody you love and they open a salon, you might go one time for the relationship. But if they suck at cutting your hair, you're not going back a second time. You'll be like, oh, one of my best buddies. I don't want them anywhere near my head with scissors. So you need to develop your skills. And there's really only two types of skills. There's new skills and there's old skills. Um, and I really feel like it takes bravery to, to develop both because you won't be good at the thing you have to do that's new. Like I just I went and spoke to a group of orthodontists out in San Diego and they're kind of getting stuck right now because to be a modern orthodontist, you have to be good at social media, email marketing, and running a business. And do you know what you don't learn at orthodontic school? Social <laughs> media, email marketing, and running a business. Right. So if they don't learn those new skills, they're going to get stuck. 
Um, they're going to, their industry is going to leave them behind. Culture is going to leave them behind. So that's what I mean by skills is the bravery to learn something new. Um, the New York Times talked about that. They asked, um, why didn't Kodak create Instagram or why didn't Polaroid create Instagram? And I think a lot of times businesses, especially when they have success, move from innovation mode to protection mode. And there's no more room for innovation. I think also, like, let's take that orthodontist example. Orthodontists are used to being really good at what they do. Like, let's say, you know, going in the mouth and doing whatever they do. But they're, they they suddenly get into this new area that they have to have decent skills at. But And they realize that. They're, they're smart enough to realize that. But uh, they're very bad at the skills at first because you're going to be really bad at something the first time you do it. Yeah, you, you should be. And it's not fun in that moment. And what happens is your ego comes in and goes, you're only supposed to do things you're great at. You shouldn't do this. Um, or you shouldn't have to do this. Um, for me, like I keep using email marketing as an example, but it's only because I suck at it so hard. And for me, I, I sent out emails the wrong way and all these people flagged me as spam. And I, and I wasn't smart enough even to be doing spam. It was just like, I wouldn't have even known how to do that if that was a thing. And they rightfully so were like, because I sat on an email list for like eight months and I didn't email it. And then all of a sudden I was like, hey, I'm back. And a bunch of people were like, no. And it just stuff like that because I'm not good at it. And things I'm not good at, I don't want to do. Like it's not comfortable. And I think that's where you have to push through that and go, if I'm going to develop this skill, I've got to be brave. Well, you know, you know what I've noticed? And maybe the same thing occurs to you through your books and your blog. But I kind of find whatever I write about, it's usually something – that I've been so horrifically bad at that I've, I've had to go through so many experiences being bad at it and learning through that, that now I have material for a book. So my wife and I wrote a book called The Power of No, because we had such a hard time, or I, I've had such a hard time all my life saying no to people. Like I was bad at it. So here I, so it gave me a great opportunity to try to be good at it by writing a book about it. But I'm wondering if you feel you were good at restarting and doing over good enough to write a book or if this was has been such a difficult thing that that gave you the material to write the book i mean i think i was good at it in the sense of i'd done it once when i moved from atlanta as kind of the copywriter guy to join dave ramsey in nashville as like a public speaker person like that was a seismic shift um so i think i got some experience then but no i think the last 18 months have been like, I wouldn't have written do-over if I was still there. Um, and once I got out, it was like, okay, now now I got to figure this out. So I definitely think that was born from there. Um, I hope, though, that I don't have to – like, I realize in the writing of this book, sometimes I'm addicted to chaos. And I need and I want to learn, you know, what that means and how to not need to kind of blow up my life to, to write something. You know, I don't know if there's a way – to if you're out there doing things that kind of meld you with uh, a lot of people, like all of your readers and your meetups and the people you're speaking to, I don't know if there's a way to avoid chaos. Yeah, I mean that, and maybe that's a pipe dream. You know, the idea of like I'll get somewhere that's just stable constantly, and so, so I don't know. Maybe maybe I I can't define as chaos as the lack or chaos as stress and challenging times because. Writing a book is challenging. Like, writing a good book is challenging. This was the hardest book I've ever written um, for a couple of reasons. One, the editor was a fan of good writing, not a fan of me. And and I, that's a big difference. 
Um, and that was that was new. There's been times when I've been. I, to- uh, by the way, I hate when I have an editor like that. That's the worst. Yeah, well, because you don't get to use any of your lazy writing things or any of your like. You put on some James Charm, like how you doing? You know, right. and there was none of that. And so she would take thousand word sections of the book, like jokes I had told, a funny story. There was this funny story about a rat that I was like, "This is gonna kill!" Like this is an awesome story. And she crossed the whole thing out and said, "I'm not a fan of a joke for a joke's sake. It either serves the audience or it moves the narrative forward, and this does neither." And I was like, "Dang." Um, <laughs> That's kind of my, it's one of my weak, like, that's one of my tricks is when I don't want to, I'm too lazy to figure out an idea, tell a funny story, mention pop culture, Kesha, tap dance away, you figure it out. And she wouldn't let me do it. And so it is hard to do those things. Um, But it's fun. Like, in the process is better. Like, the book you create at the end of that is better than if you had taken the easy way. So so you, you kind of cap off this equation by saying it's relationships plus skills plus character. And then the whole thing times hustle and so how do you define hustle i guess i define it in a different way sometimes than most people because i think hustle has been just it's got the worst reputation on the internet right now like every kind of motivational person takes a quote and puts it on top of a lamborghini photo and it's like every day i'm hustling and they say abraham lincoln said that and you're like i'm pretty sure that was rick ross like that was not abraham lincoln and so rick ross the rapper or rick ross the gangster yeah, exactly. The the original one that got in trouble. I mean, he kind of brought crack across the country. Rick yeah, Ross, you know, the original one. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm interviewing him later this month. Really? Yeah. Well, I guarantee I won't come up in that interview. He only <laughs> came up in mine. Like the chances of him going. Well, you know, it's like what John Acuff said. Um, probably not going to happen. That's funny. But yeah, so for me, hustle is about focus, not frenzy. Like I always like to say, it's a scalpel. It helps you kind of remove the stuff you're not supposed to be focused on. Um, and it helps you kind of stay flexible to things as your dream changes, as you, you know, as the next thing you're going to do kind of clarifies. So that's what I mean by hustle. Well, that's really interesting because a lot of people think, like, think about um, bodybuilders. So they, they would define transformation as, okay, I got bigger. I did more reps and lifted more pounds and I, and my muscles got bigger. And But I think another aspect of transformation that's maybe even more important is subtracting. So instead of adding, subtracting, you know, let's say negative habits or subtracting uh, negative aspects of your life. So when you say this, when you use the scalpel analogy, that's what it makes me think of, that that hustle is really kind of taking out areas of your life where you might have been inefficient. Yeah, inefficient or been making decisions in the wrong way. Um, Like one of the things that I – like that I see a lot in culture, it feels like is that people tweet stuff that's fun to tweet, but it's not necessarily true. Like it's just hooky. So like they'll, you know, leaders will do this all the time. And I had a line in my book and do over that said, people always remember your generosity and never forget your greed. And my wife said, that's not true. I said, what do you, you know, what do you mean? She said, the first half isn't true. People forget generosity all the time. That's the whole concept of people taking you know, stuff for granted. And she said, I agree that people remember your greed. Like when somebody burns a relationship, you remember that. And so I think that's part of the removing things that you go. I I wrote that in there because it was fun to write and I knew I'd get some tweets. But if it's not true and it's not going to help people, I need to edit it out. Um, and there's, you mentioned negative situations. Negative relationships can be like that. Like at every job, everyone who's listening right now that works at a corporation, there's a gossip gang. 
Like there's this small handful of people that all they do is talk negatively about the experience there. And then if you're part of that and go, wow, it's weird that I feel negative today. No, it's not. Like you've been, you know, hanging out with Sheila all day and she hates this place. So of course you're picking up on that too. And so I think you do remove stuff. And that's, that maybe that's, you know, kind of some of the power of no is saying no to those things you're not supposed to do. What what if the negative relationships are like your boss or a family member that you feel like you have to deal with a lot? Well, so with the boss, I mean, there's a couple things. You can change how you're approaching work. Like maybe your performance will help some, that relationship somewhat. If it doesn't, every horrible boss is ultimately saying the same thing, and that's I dare you to leave. I dare you to get another job. Like I dare you to add four more revenue streams to what you're working on. And so you, you know, you get to kind of be frustrated and hurt and wounded, or you get to accept that dare and do the things in the morning or do the things at night or do the things on the weekend that help you leave that boss. That's a really great way to put it. That's going to be my answer. Now, what if it, what if it's a, a family member, a family member? Part of it is, I think it's our role. Part of our role is understanding. They won't understand. Um, in the book, I put a story about seeing a bunch of birds in Rockport, Massachusetts, building uh, nests in lobster cages. And I thought, if you ever asked a lobster if that was a good idea, they'd say, no, that's suicide. Like, that's, that's you know, you try to avoid your whole life, that, that moment. But for a bird, it was a perfect house. No cat could get in there. It wasn't going to be moved because it was part of this motif that said, welcome to uh, Rockport. I think a lot of people, like you and I, we get these bird kind of ideas and these bird dreams, and then we round up all the lobsters in our lives and are surprised they don't understand it. Um, so to do something new means to be misunderstood. Um, and so you have to kind of go in knowing, like, I, I, they're not going to understand it, and, and that's okay. The other thing, you have to watch out for people that say things like, are you still trying to write a book? Are you still a photographer? Because that word still, like, those are the things family members who don't understand or, or friends will sometimes, you know, and that word still is a sharp little dagger. Well, what if, what if, it, so those are obviously, like, negative things to kind of avoid. But what if it, it, it jumps a level? Like, a boss, you can always leave and quit. But a family member is hard to leave and quit. And what if the tensions or the, or the difficulties get so great that it's just kind of, you just don't want to spend any time with that person. Well, if it's, if it's a spouse, I think, you know, you try to go to counseling. Um, you try to work on that, you know, and, and you try to, because the relationship matters enough that it, it matters to fix it. Um, if like, it's wh a, when you're on the road, like doing 60 uh, talks a year and doing all these meetups and stuff, did you ever have tension with uh, Jenny as your wife? Oh yeah, totally. Um, last, last fall I, I called her, um, from California. And it was the longest trip I've had. I mean, most of the time I try to travel like a SWAT team. Like I get in the city, I get out of the city quickly. Like people who don't do it and are like, did you get to see any of downtown Cleveland, Ohio? You're like, I saw the Hampton Inn. I don't know why I keep using it as my reference. Um, and <laughs> I saw the airport. But so I called Jenny and I say, hey, we got this great offer next May. It's going to be amazing. It'll cover us financially, you know, which is a conversation you have when you're on your own. Um, and she said, we're fine financially. Like we're already fine. And then I said, well, now we'll be finer. And, um, she was quiet and said, well, just make sure you earn enough money to buy a new family because this one won't still be around. Wow. And that wasn't, she wasn't like, it wasn't yelling. It wasn't like, she wasn't mad. She was just being honest. So yeah, we're working on that. Um, I like to say yes, just like everybody likes to say yes. And there's, you know, there's an ego hit to some of this stuff where like you show up and you people tell you you're amazing for an hour and then you go home and like, ooh, that feels amazing. 
Um, so I'm, I'm in the trenches of that right now. I'd be, I'd be lying if I said I had it figured out, but I think what Jenny and I do have is that we have been to counseling. Like we've been married 14 years and I think she has a voice, a strong voice that there's spaces for her to really speak the truth, you know? Well, and then what's next? So you, so you have the book do over coming out. Um, what do you want to do next? What are you working on? Um, so I'll start working on the next book probably this fall. Um, but I'm really, I'm really excited about seeing the reaction to do over. Um, I've got, um, a bunch, I've probably got, I don't know, like 20 things on the calendar as far as speaking engagements. And it's been fun to see businesses and colleges and get to go speak, you know, to different audiences about the do over message. But then I'll start, yeah, I'll start working on a book probably in like November, December, January on the next one. Um, you, know, you know what I would suggest too? I don't know how many of these you're doing. Like obviously you're on my podcast. You were on Brian Koppelman's podcast. You should do as many podcasts as possible as like quickly as possible. Like I think podcasts are, are – the podcast tour either replaces or supplements the traditional book tour. Oh, that's, that's great feedback. Yeah. I've, I've tried to do a bunch of these. Um, and this one, it was one, I was really nervous about this one. Um, Why were you nervous about this one? Cause you're so smart. Like I listened to a bunch of your interviews and like the 10 ideas a day and the, like, I really was, and, and Brian is the same way. Like with Brian, I was really intimidated too, because he's just so smart. And I, I don't know, there's times when I feel like, you know, I live in Tennessee. Yeehaw. Like I'm firing <laughs> pistols in the air, you know? And like, so before this one, I really, you know, read up on you, did all this stuff. And, you know, that's why I was nervous. Oh, well, obviously there was no reason to be nervous. So no, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan. I watched a bunch of your stuff as well and, and your talks and I've been reading your books. And uh, you're, 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 you're funny and the books give good advice. Like I don't see any BS in the books. And, and you're right. It's not personal finance. It's more about uh, finding ways to, to reinvent yourself in this uh, economy where things change so quickly. You kind of have to have all these skill sets that people are not used to. So, so. Well, and I think you need, I think my hope is that the investments in the book are, you'll take to every job you have. I don't know what work's going to look like for you in five years or five months, but I know you'll never need a job where they want you to have less skills. Like you'll never have a job in the future where they're like, we wish you were less connected, you know? So my hope is that regardless of where you are, there's something that applies to you. Well, uh, John Acuff, thanks so much for coming on my podcast. I really appreciate it. Do Over is the title of the book. What's the actual date that it comes out? April 7th. So April 7th. So we'll probably get this podcast out the day the book comes out. Awesome. That's great. Yeah, and uh, again, I really appreciate it. I'm also going to introduce you to a bunch of other uh, podcasters so you can quickly get on some podcasts. I would love that. All right, well, thanks a lot, John, and I will talk to you soon. I'm sure we'll, we'll run into each other again. All right, thanks, James. Thanks.